We turn in Scripture to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 24. First John is a very intimate letter, talks about fellowship with the Lord, and in this section, it's emphasizing how love is the test of our sonship and our fellowship with the Lord. Those who fellowship with the Lord are those who love. And we read that right away when we start with verse 10. 1 John 3, starting at verse 10. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture 
and on the basis of many passages of Scripture, that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found on pages 22 and 23 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 40, which addresses the commandment regarding murder and hate. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Lord's Day 40. Question and answer 105. What doth God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge. Also, that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore, also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No, for when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him, and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies." Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been making our way through the Ten Commandments. And as we continue our treatment this morning, I want to begin by asking the same question that I have asked multiple times already in the course of our treatment. Are you thankful? In your heart, are you one who is truly thankful for what God has done for you? This is where we are in the catechism. We've seen how great our sin and misery is outside of Jesus Christ. We've seen that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do no good. We are enslaved to sin. We have no hope of salvation. And we are worthy of both temporal and eternal punishment of body and soul. And then we've also seen how God has saved us from our sins. God has given us a saving faith whereby we are made partakers of Jesus Christ and all His benefits. Jesus, who bore the punishment for us in our place, who satisfied God's justice for our sins, and who now by His Spirit has imparted unto us eternal life. We've been given His Spirit so that we already now begin to live out that eternal life here on earth as we live a life of holiness and good works. And now in this third section of the Catechism, we're looking at how we are to show our thankfulness to God for that great salvation. Showing thankfulness to God by living out of that life. Living in all good works to the glory of God. The question is, does your life, does your, does my behavior demonstrate that we are thankful? What we need to recognize 
is that every time we are tempted to yell at someone, every time we are tempted to burst out with unholy rage, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to show our Savior that we are, in fact, thankful for what He has done. Every time you want to say something that's going to hurt someone, you have an opportunity to show that you are the willing servant of the Lord and that you love Him and you want to honor Him in how you respond. Instead of speaking those cutting words or lashing out with snide comments and hurting another person, you have an opportunity to show love. Meekness, mercy, kindness, patience. You have the opportunity to do good, to honor God, to show Him that you love Him and you are thankful for the salvation He has given you. As Paul writes in Romans 12, we're familiar with it as the family visitation passage from last year. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we show God our love, and our thankfulness. So let me ask you again, does your life and does your behavior demonstrate that you are thankful to God? This morning we look at the sixth commandment and we want to get to the heart of the sixth commandment. We want to see the heart issues involved. We take as our theme, avoiding murder and exercising love. We look at three things. First, we look at the murder that's forbidden. Second, we look at the love that is required. And then third, the great need we have. Now we should understand, we should start off by understanding what this commandment is all about. The sixth commandment forbids murder. In our Bibles, you children know, the sixth commandment reads like this, Thou shalt not kill. But in order to understand it properly, we could perhaps better read it this way, Thou shalt not murder. The point is, there are some forms of killing that are not sinful. Forms of killing that are in fact praiseworthy and required of God. For example, the sixth commandment does not forbid killing out of self-defense. In fact, our family just read it in devotions this past week from Exodus 22. If a thief be found breaking up, if a thief be found breaking and entering and be smitten that he die... There shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. And the point is, if someone has no choice but to kill as a way to defend himself from an intruder, he is not guilty of murder. What he did was permissible. However, if it becomes apparent that killing the intruder was not necessary, then the one who killed the intruder is guilty. So the sixth commandment does not forbid killing someone out of self-defense. Neither does this sixth commandment forbid killing as a form of capital punishment. In fact, in Genesis 9, we read that the requirement should be that if a man commits murder, he should be put to death. In Genesis 9, verse 6, we read, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And the point is, to defend human life, to defend who man is, as a creature originally made in the image of God, the appropriate punishment for murder is death. And that's confirmed by Romans 13, which says that the civil government has sword power. And the idea there is to put someone to death. The state has the God-given authority to take away a man's life as punishment for crimes that were committed. So the sixth commandment does not forbid killing 
as a form of capital punishment. Neither does this commandment forbid killing when a nation takes up arms to defend itself against an aggressive enemy. The sixth commandment does not forbid these forms of killing. What the sixth commandment does forbid is murder. And what is murder? Murder is the unlawful, deliberate, taking away of the life of another human being. Now, obviously, we can go deeper. We must go deeper. The Catechism gives us a beautiful description of murder. We will explore that more deeply in a moment, but let's start here. Murder is the unlawful, deliberate, taking away of the life of another human being. Now, besides the obvious examples of shooting someone or... or uh, you know, stabbing someone to death. Consider these examples. Think of abortion. The laws of the land allow for abortion, but before God, abortion is murder. It's, it's cold-blooded, cruel murder. There is forgiveness for this sin where there is true repentance, just as there was forgiveness even for the thief on the cross who was a murderer. But let's call the sin for what it is. It's murder. Think of euthanasia. Think of suicide. The culture we live in is a culture immersed, characterized by murder. Just as our culture is a culture we saw last time that is characterized by uh, rebellion to authority. Just as our culture is a culture characterized by adultery and lying and covetousness. So our culture is a culture characterized by murder and violence. Even just look at the entertainment that, that pre- pervades everything from video games to movies. It's all murder. Murder in some of its most offensive and blatant forms. For examples, other examples, think of doing drugs. That's a form of murder. It's an attack on my own body, my own life. We must not hurt ourselves or expose ourselves to any danger. Think of alcohol abuse, not just alcohol addiction. Think of alcohol abuse. Think of a morbid obesity that results from gluttony not taking care of my weight when it is in my ability to control my weight, it is simply hurting myself. Participating in extreme sports where I am exposing myself to very real danger is sin. These things are sins because, let's remember, my life is not my own. My body is not my own to do with as I see fit. Jesus died for my body on the cross. Jesus loves my body just as much as he loves my soul. Jesus counts my body, he counts your body as very precious to him. Your body, my body is of great value to Jesus and he has given me my body for me to be a steward of my body. So we don't idolize our bodies. We don't live our lives worshiping our bodies, but we are called certainly to be stewards of our bodies. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves to dwell in my body, just as the people in the Old Testament took care of the temple to make sure it was clean and and well cared for. So we should take care of our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so for me to abuse and mistreat my body, to inflict harm upon my body, is to forget how valuable and precious my body is in the sight of God. And part of Satan's craftiness is to tempt us to hurt our own bodies. Satan is a murderer, right? He was a murderer from the beginning. And and this is what he does. This is his craftiness. And the sixth commandment puts before us the calling to care for our bodies as we are able to. And obviously, 
to care for other people's bodies as well. So all these things that I've mentioned as examples are forms of murder. They are forbidden in the sixth commandment. But now, beloved, I I dare say that we know this. We understand these things. And what I want to get to this morning is the heart of the issue, the source of the problem. When we think about murder, what is at the heart of the issue? Ultimately, why is murder wrong? Ultimately, why does murder take place? What explains murder? Well, to answer that question, we need to say, it ultimately goes back to my relationship with God. That's at the heart of the issue. That's always at the heart of the issue. With any sin you're dealing with, what's your relationship with God like? And ultimately, murder takes place because what I've done in my relationship with God is this. I've put God off to the side, and I've put myself in the place of God. And then, worshiping myself, treating myself as God, I live my life out of love for myself. And I try to organize my life and arrange my life in the way, not that God desires, but that I desire. I go to work in my life to make my life serve me and my interests in my desires and my happiness because I'm living with this attitude. It's about me. And then when I do that, and now I have to face this issue of what I'm going to do with my neighbor who comes across my path, murder arises this way, I will simply get rid of my neighbor. Right? That's what murder is in its most blatant forms. This person that God has put in my life, I don't like. I don't like him, I don't like her, and so I will get rid of him, I will get rid of her, and I murder him. I murder her. That's murder. And that's also where murder also is expressed in its more subtler forms. Maybe I don't actually snuff out the life of my neighbor in a in such a physical, absolute ways that the person physically dies, but I attack the person, either physically or emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. I attack the person in one shape or form because this person is getting in the way of my interests, my desires. He is preventing me from fulfilling my desires for myself and for my selfish happiness. I don't like this person. Maybe it's my boss at work. Maybe it's my fellow church member. Maybe it's my own spouse. I don't like this person right now. This person isn't making me happy. This person isn't serving me and what I want in life right now. This person isn't giving me glory and honor and serving me in just the way that I want it right now. So I will attack this person, either to his face or behind his back. I will attack him in one way or another, either to get rid of him or her or to change him or her so that this person does give me the glory and the honor as I want it. So I take to myself the position of God in two ways. First, I have the attitude that this person should be living for my happiness, to serve my desires rather than God's honor and glory. And then second, I further take to myself the position of God by now snuffing out the life of this fellow human being. And that's not mine to take because I'm not God. That's God's prerogative. He's the one who gives life and who can take life away. When I do that, that's murder. And that's, that's because of my idolatry. Congregation, that's what unholy anger, hatred, bitterness, and envy is all about. It's all about acting as if I am God, all the glory should go to me, 
and I should have the power to shape my life just the way I want it to my own personal taste. And if you don't please me in just the way I want to be pleased at this moment, then I will punish you. It's all rooted in self-love. People have anger issues, right? We talk about anger issues maybe. People have anger issues because people love themselves too much. I am God. I love myself. All my neighbors should serve and honor me. And if they don't, they deserve to be damned. And with the power that I have, I will try to damn that person, either by physically killing them or by lashing out at them with cruel words or trying to intimidate them with death glares or by acting crazy, smashing things, being manipulative, slamming the doors, yelling at the children, all kinds of things because I am God. You know, by the way people sometimes behave, it's as if they're saying, look, I want everyone here to know right now that I'm angry. And everyone should care that I'm angry. And everyone should change how they are behaving in order to appease my anger. And as soon as someone steps outside the bounds of my will and what I want, at exactly that moment, I will lash out at you with hatred and anger and bitterness and desire of revenge. You will be the object of my all-consuming wrath. I will act the part of God and try to destroy you, whether in body or soul or both. Because right now, I have a right to be angry. You understand? I have a right to be angry. And everybody better agree with me right now that I have a right to be angry. Because you have displeased me. You have frustrated me. And I am God. So damn you to hell. Not damn you to God's hell. Who cares about God's hell? Damn you to my hell. I will make your life a kind of hell where my wrath is poured out upon you because you don't worship me like I want you to. Or you don't please me. That's at the heart of murder, beloved. It's at the heart of murder. Self-worship. Just think of a few examples, right? This, this gets very practical. Think of road rage. Maybe we can, if we're driving of driving age, we can understand road rage. And, and this is to our own, this is showing our own sinful natures. A person cuts you off. Or a person is going too slow in the fast lane. And boom, you're angry. Because that person just violated your rules for the road. And suddenly, my, my heart is full of anger and hatred, and, and maybe I'm even yelling through the windshield. And then we're, we're justifying our anger, right? Because these are the rules of the road, not just my rules. But that's what it's about, right? You've gotten in my way. For, for another very blatant example, think of abortion. Think of the reality of abortion. What is abortion? Uh, abortion is... I don't want this person in my life. That, that's really the essence of it. This neighbor, right? This neighbor that God has put in my life is an inconvenience to me. God has put this neighbor in my life. God has put this neighbor in my womb, right? Because he's the one who gives life. But I don't want to love this neighbor. So what should I do? I should kill this neighbor while I still have the chance. This person is going to ruin my life, my career, my future, so just get rid of this neighbor, right? That, that's, that's at the root of murder, the love of self. Think of bullying. A, a student who bullies others at school, he thinks he can bully that person simply because, why? Because he doesn't like that person. Young people, think about that. Who gives you the right to make fun of someone else? Why are you taking a, a sick joy in putting other kids down or giving someone a bad name? You're not doing it out of love for God. 
When you act this way, who are you worshiping? It's idolatry. It's self-worship. Someone, somehow putting another person down is making myself feel better, right? That's why we do it as adults, too. Makes me look better. Think of a husband who gets angry with his wife. His wife doesn't cook the food just as he likes, so he gets angry. Some days he has good days because he's in a good mood, but, but as soon as he's having a bad day, watch out, be on your guard, because here comes the angry man. And now everyone in the home has been taught to start walking on tiptoes because he's having a bad day, and, and everyone learns that he expects everyone to bow down to him. Here's a man entirely absorbed in himself. He's so wrapped up in himself that he has no time for loving his neighbor's life. Maybe he doesn't even notice his neighbor's life. Think of parents who really let their children have it with, with what, what they call discipline. They're not disciplining their children. That, that is, they're not training. They're not, they're not teaching their children. They're just beating their child or, or giving ridiculous punishments. I'm going to ground you for a year. Because, why? Because you've made me angry. Right? What, what does a parent so often say? We... we this is very applicable to those with children. What, what does a parent so often say? You are making me so angry. Not, not, you need to obey God. But you're making me angry. And, and even the language itself that we hear coming out of our own mouth betrays the fact that I'm not really concerned about what God thinks of this behavior. No, you're making me angry. I'm concerned with how this behavior is annoying and bothering me. And sometimes parents can have the attitude, and now you're going to get it because I'm still bigger than you, I'm still stronger than you, and I'm going to punish you for what you did. And that's what some people call discipline. And what's going on in these instances? Well, it's self-love, murder. I think part of what is going on on is this, the angry person wishes he could remold all the people around him so that, so that they are molded in his own image and after his own likeness. Boy, if everyone were just like me and thought my thoughts after me, then we would have a good thing going. Others have made his life difficult. Others have gotten in the way of his plans and now he's angry. And instead of being concerned that people be more concerned about being conformed to the image of God, instead of being concerned that people be conformed to the image of God, the angry man wishes that people would be more conformed to what he wants. Maybe his own image. And maybe someone says, oh, it's just my temper. I just have a short temper. That's my problem. It's not that I hate the person. It's just he made me so upset. and I just wasn't expecting things to go that way. That's why I became angry. No, no, you know what the problem is. The problem is that that person hasn't yet been knocked off his pedestal. And he's still thinking as if he is God. And until he gets knocked off his pedestal and learns his place before God, things aren't going to change. And it's murder. It's trying to get rid of that neighbor that God has put in your life in one way or another. That gets at the heart of the sixth commandment. That's where murder comes from. And we all struggle with it. And we have to examine ourselves here. Because, because for the Christian, what lies at the bottom of his heart is this. 
I love God. I do. He alone is my heart's desire and I long to worship Him. I want to do what honors Him. I want to show my thankfulness. I need to let God be God. And when God puts a neighbor in my life, I'm called to love that person for God's sake. I am called to love that person, do him good, seek his happiness and blessedness, knowing that this is precisely what God calls me to do. I'm living for his glory. As, and God calls me as his child to put off all anger, wrath, and malice, and to love my neighbor as myself, whether it's as a parent, whether it's as a spouse, whether it's a, as a child, whether it's as a brother or a sister, as a fellow church member, as a neighbor. To love him as myself. And to love him for God's sake. That's the calling of the sixth commandment. And beloved, when we reflect on these things and we look at ourselves, then we must also remember the good news right away. Remember the context of this sixth commandment. We're redeemed in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're striving to live a life of thankfulness. We know there is forgiveness for all those who hate this sin, who turn from this sin, who confess this sin, and are looking to Jesus Christ as the Redeemer from sin. That's the context in which we're discussing this commandment. Well, all this leads to what we want to consider next, the required love. We must avoid murder, and we must exercise love. We can't just keep the sixth commandment uh, negatively by putting away hatred and bitterness and desire for revenge, We can't keep the Sixth Commandment simply by isolating ourselves from every possible neighbor. No, we must positively love others. Question and answer 107 puts it this way. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when the Bible, for when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies and that we do good even to our enemies. Instead of murder, we must love. And we can't be lukewarm about this either, congregation. Think of the church at Laodicea. They were lukewarm. Not hot, not cold. They didn't hate, but they didn't love either. They they simply didn't care, right? That, That was their attitude. They were lukewarm. And Jesus says, I will spew you out. Really, that lukewarmness that we're tempted to fall into is perhaps the most deceitful form of spiritual hatred. That lack of care, that indifference is perhaps the most deceitful form of spiritual hatred. Because what is, what is lukewarmness? What is indifference? Indifference is claiming to love while actually hating because we actually really don't care. We read in 1 John 3, verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is active. If you love someone, you do things for them. Back in verse 17, John writes, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and and does nothing right, simply does nothing, shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? We're called to love the neighbor, and loving the neighbor involves doing him good. It's only by doing him good that we don't do him any evil. Think of the good Samaritan. It's not just good that we don't beat up the the man walking down the road and, and 
and pass by. No, let's actively help him out as the Good Samaritan did. That's the keeping of the sixth commandment. So what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, loving the neighbor means, first of all, to live my own life in holiness. That's where it starts. I love the neighbor by, by pursuing a life of holiness. Because I, I can't love the neighbor, I'm not loving the neighbor, if I am walking in sin. I, I can only love my neighbor in the sphere of doing what is holy in the eyes of God. Never tolerating sin, never minimizing sin, never laughing at sin, certainly never committing sin. That, that's, I'm not saying that that's what we actually accomplish, but that's what love looks like. Not committing the sin. True love always pursues after holiness in my own life first. Think about it. If you are living in, private, in, in sin, in your private life, you're not loving your neighbor. First of all, you're, you're wasting your time with your sin. And, and secondly, you're, as a member of the body, you're, you're, you're bringing poison, right? And it's, it's going to affect the other members. And it's going to affect yourself and your ability to love the other members. And there's that corporate responsibility. If you are walking in private sin, you're not loving your neighbor as you ought. And if you want to show God your thankfulness for His salvation in Jesus Christ, then you will honestly strive to put away your sin so that you can love your neighbor. So loving the neighbor means, first of all, living my own life in holiness. Second of all, loving the neighbor means to give myself for my neighbor. Because love is always characterized by giving. I give for my neighbor. I give my neighbor my help. I give my neighbor my protection. I give my neighbor my faithfulness, my loyalty. Just as Jesus also gave himself for us. Entirely, his whole body, his whole soul. And during the agonies of hell, drinking the full cup of God's wrath against our sin, dying on the cross, he gave himself in love. That's how he commended his love to us. 1 John 3, verse 16, we read, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's Christ in me. That's others seeing Christ in the midst of the church, where we are laying down our lives for the other members. God gave Himself for us. Jesus died on the cross for us, and that's what love looks like. We love each other in our homes in our marriages, at church, at work. You're, you love your neighbor at school by laying down your life for each other. Living a life of love is living a life of service. That's what we want to do because we're thankful. Third of all, loving the neighbor involves seeking the neighbor's spiritual good, calling out sin for what it is, encouraging godliness, Rejoicing in the truth. That's what love does. True love involves having a culture here, even in church, where we can talk to each other about our sins, about each other's sins. We, we are free to call each other out. And we don't have to be afraid that the other person is going to blow up in a fit of anger. Right? Because we have Christ in us. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we know we're all sinners. We're all sinners saved by grace. With nothing of ourselves to boast in. And in love, we're looking out for each other. 
And as friends in Christ, we're encouraging each other to, to walk the walk. In the most recent issue of the Beacon Lights, the editorial has a very fine article on the topic of spiritual accountability. Somebody pointed me to that article this past week. And when I read that article, I thought there were a few connections between that article and what we're looking at in uh, the Lord's Day this morning. And I want to quote a few sentences from that editorial. This is the most recent issue of the Beacon Lights. And the editor is talking about spiritual accountability, and he writes, quote, When believers hold each other accountable, they are serving one another in humility and confessing their weaknesses and sins in a way that exposes them before each other and before God. This practice is extremely humbling and leaves no room for pride. It takes time and effort, and it is an important part of the Christian life that is far too often neglected. One evidence that we are lacking in the practice of mutual submission can be observed through a disturbing trend I've noticed among members of the PRC who have come to realize that their life is not right with God and seek to change this pattern. In regret for their actions, they look for a fresh start in life, which often means leaving the PRC and going to a new church in another denomination. The question we need to ask is why so many people, especially young people, feel the need to find their fresh start somewhere other than the church in which they were raised. It's easy to point our fingers at the one who has left, at the one who has left, as being insincere in his or her repentance, or to quietly whisper about how shameful sin can be. But this trend probably says as much about our denominational culture as it does about the people who leave. Is it possible that we so value a life of external perfection that we forget the joy in heaven over the repentance of a sinner? And the article keeps going. It's a very fine article. What I want to emphasize is this. Are we still able to love each other that way? That we can call sin for what it is and humble ourselves when others do that to us. Isn't this exactly what we're doing in our own homes and families because we love each other? How often aren't I doing that to my children? How often aren't my children doing that to me and, and with marriages? Do we have that same thing in the, in the body, in the, in the congregation? So that we humble ourselves when others do that to us. And we recognize this is what love looks like in the church. Not so that we are becoming judgmental, not to shame others for dropping the ball, spiritually speaking. Not, not so that they now move churches and go somewhere else, but so we, that we can be a help to each other. Or if someone does point out our sin, do we, do we immediately become angry, right? Because, because I'm, I'm putting forth this image of perfection, and they're attacking that image. And I become angry and bitter, and, and I have this desire for revenge. I tell you, beloved, it's a breath of fresh air for me when I come across someone who in true love, right, in true love with a meek and humble spirit who has a real concern for God's glory, calls me out for my sin and, and, and wants to help me grow in my Christian life. I will say, too, that's also the rich blessing of a godly spouse. 
to have that openness and frankness. We, we should all be enjoying that. In, in a way, it's really hard. It's not natural to the flesh. It's humbling to sometimes, always be having our sin pointed out. But we're all sinners. We're all sinners saved by grace. No one has made himself to differ from any other person. And if I can't receive a loving word of admonition, maybe my biggest issue is my pride. And God has given us to each other for a blessing, for spiritual accountability, so that we can grow together in the fear of the Lord, so that we are watching out for each other. That's the kind of friend I want. Adults, this is not just for, for children or young people. Adults, let me ask you, the same friends that you hang out with on Friday nights, are these the same friends who would be willing to call you out for your sins? Very bluntly, very openly, in love. Are they maybe the same kind of friends who would, who would call you up on Monday or Tuesday and say, where were you on Sunday? I didn't see you in church. Or, or do your friends just mind their own business when it comes to that? when it comes to spiritual matters. And well, well, we just don't have that kind of relationship with our friends. Well, let me ask you, what kind of friendship is that? What a blessing the Lord gives us when He gives us good friends, close friends who, who care for us so much that, that they do bring these things up. What a blessing when we have fellow church members who love us that much. We care for each other. We don't, we don't just stick to our, to our families. We don't just stick to our little comfortable cliques. But, but we're, we're looking out for each other. Even Sunday morning, maybe I get early to church, and I'm just, I'm looking around, and I can think of others, and I can even pray for them as church is, is getting ready to start. And I'm thinking of them, and maybe I need to reach out to them. Maybe I haven't talked to them in a while. And I want to know how they're doing. We're not busybodies, right? Trying to meddle in other people's affairs. Busybodies busy don't love. Busybodies destroy the church. But we want to love the other members of the church. That's love. And that's part of keeping the sixth commandment. Because, because in the end, it's not about me. And, and, and right, we can say this together, it's not about us. In the end, it, it is ultimately about God. Well, what's our great need? We've looked at the forbidden murder. We've looked at the, the required love. What is our great need? Well, our great need is multifaceted. First, the great need is to live more before the face of God. Right? When we live in hatred and envy and anger and desire for revenge, we need to reconstruct how we're looking at this world. Because it's not about me. Life is about God and the calling He has given me. God loves me. God does all things for my good, and I must love Him and serve Him and trust Him and look to Him alone for all good things. And I submit to Him by loving this neighbor that He has put in my life. He's in control of the neighbor that's put in my life, and He calls me to love my neighbor even as myself. That's the call. We're going we're to look at this in the next commandments, right? These commandments build on each other. I don't steal against my neighbor. I don't lie. I don't gossip. All these things, uh, they kind of stack on top of each other, and we get, we get further into it as we explore these commandments. So live before the face of God. Second, the great need is this, to keep in the forefront of our minds what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. As I said in the introduction, every moment is an opportunity to show God 
we are thankful. At those moments when I am tempted to be angry, to be jealous, I instead need to remember to be thankful for the salvation God has given me in Jesus Christ. If I have tasted the grace of God, how can I possibly hold a grudge against another person? Just think of what Jesus endured. He endured the wrath of God, the anger of God that should have been directed towards me. I deserve that cup of God's wrath, eternal punishment in hell. But Jesus drank that for me. I have been forgiven so much. So much. So how can I now desire that others should drink my cup of wrath when I have been spared the cup of wrath that I deserved to drink? As Jesus has loved us, even so must we love one another. Instead of pouring out his wrath upon us, God protected us from that wrath. We ought also then also to protect others from our wrath, you know, our unholy wrath, our bitterness, hatred, and revenge. That's the second thing we need. And then the third, the great need is this, to pray for a richer outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? It is possible to put away this unholy anger and avoid murder and to truly enter into loving my neighbor only by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for the Spirit. Dwell in us, sanctify us, work the love of God in us more and more. A true understanding of the sixth commandment makes us aware of how frequently we violate this commandment. That's part of the exercise here. It shows us our sins. We should, all of us, be convicted at the end of this sermon. But then it all drives us to Jesus Christ, who bore God's wrath on our behalf. And now the law comes to us again and says, this is how you live a thankful life. Are you thankful? Do you love the Lord your God? Thou shalt not kill. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for these words of instruction. We need them. Give us the grace to submit to Thy Word. And give us Thy Holy Spirit more and more to walk in Thy ways. Give us to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. And give us truly to know how we are to be thankful in all things, because we are thine and thou art ours. Help us to live before thy face more and more every day. Shape our hearts and shape our lives by thy word, that it might truly be a means of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.